Good to see everybody this evening. Uh, Millie, I think that's a good idea for the fellowship meal before the afternoon service. Um, you know, after having like lasagna or something like that, you go into a coma for that last ser service and a salad. Maybe we'll be awake for Andrew when he comes back for that afternoon service. But looking forward to having Andrew Kingsley back here. We try to have him every year in some way, and uh, I'm excited that we're going to have an extended period with him. Uh, he's all grown up now. He's got three kids, and <laughs> hopefully he'll bring his whole family with him. Uh, we're looking forward to spending some time with him. So I'm very excited about that, and also anxious to get into our new study on angels. And uh, I thought about continuing with the questions about angels, but um, looking at how many things we need to talk about, I want to just go into some new material tonight. And I think we'll cover all the things that would have been covered in the questions that we didn't get to last week anyway. So I want to talk about the nature of angels, just some basic points about their nature comparing them with human beings, and also bringing out some points that are in the biblical text. So let's just start with this comparison between angels and human beings, see some similarities and some differences. And here's the first one I want us to look at. We've talked about this already in answering the question, where do angels come from? Angels were created, humans are created. Uh, we won't go over all these passages in detail again because, like I said last week, we talked about them. But in Job 38, it's clear that the angels were present. They're referred to as the sons of God in that passage. But they were present when God created the world. They witnessed the six days of creation and rejoiced at that. Um, but they weren't eternal because we learn in Colossians 1 uh, verses 15 and following that Christ uh, made all things in heaven and on earth whether visible or invisible and then he gives four terms there that might apply to angelic beings but even if they don't he made all things in heaven and earth visible or invisible we know that refers to angels uh, we noted Psalm 148 that clearly says that God made the angels, and so they are created. Um, actually, I need to correct myself. They were created. There's a slight difference in that statement. I want you to notice. Angels were created, past tense. Humans are created. Now, why do you think it's important to make that distinction? They're still being born. There, there's still more humans coming into the world, into existence, every day but there are no new angels coming into the world look at luke chapter 20 verse 36 this is jesus's discussion with the sadducees about the resurrection and he you'll remember he brings up the angels uh, because the question is given to him about marriage in the afterlife and he says they won't be given in marriage verse 36 for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Angels cannot die anymore, 
So there's no need for God to create anymore. We talked last week about how there are innumerable angels and 10,000 times 10,000, you know, just a whole heavenly host that we can't see, but, but that are living with God in heaven. And so those are important things to consider there. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the next one. The next comparison, angels are immortal, but humans in this age are mortal. That goes back to the point we just made, where at the present time, prior to the resurrection, we suffer death. But the promise is that because Jesus was raised, we may be raised. And at that point, we become immortal. Now, we use these terms eternal, immortal, sometimes interchangeably. Is there a difference, though, between eternal and immortal? Yeah, that's exactly right. Eternal, no beginning at all. And only God is eternal. Um, angels, of course, are below God because they were created even though they will live forever. And that's the difference. Eternal and immortal are not the same thing. We are promised immortal bodies when we're raised. But that doesn't mean we're eternal because we all have a beginning point. And that's the same uh, the same is true with angels. Okay, here's an interesting point to contrast with us. Angels are physically stronger than humans. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is in Peter's rebuke of false teachers, and he's giving an example about the bold and willful false teachers. And uh, in the middle of verse 10, he says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, there's some confusion about what the glorious ones is. Is it God? Is he talking about um, people in positions of authority in religion or people you know, in positions of authority in the government? Um, what is he talking about there? But he says, whereas angels, verse 11, though greater in might and power, that is greater in might and power than human beings, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So these angels that he's talking about here have great respect even for um, people who don't deserve respect. They, they're dignified as the way they're presented here. But not only that, they are greater in might and power. That just means they're stronger. And so when you go to the resurrection accounts, you see that the angel rolled the stone away from, from uh, the mouth of Jesus' tomb. And uh, it seemed to be you know, an easy task for him to do. Those gigantic stones were put there for the very reason that nobody could move them in secret and uh, steal a body. So those angels had to be really strong. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7 reassures the Christians there that the Lord will be revealed with his mighty angels. Angels in might. I had a thought while I'm on this and we talked about the angels at the tomb of Jesus that connects to a discussion we had last week about cherubim. Uh, you know, the cherubim were depicted on the mercy seat on either end, right? And in John's account, when they look into the tomb, they see two angels on either side of where Jesus had lain. That's just an interesting little detail that makes you wonder, is that supposed to make us think about the presence of the Lord on the mercy seat in the Old Testament? Or is that a coincidence? And John, in his typical way, he never explains it. But it just uh, one of those things that gives you goosebumps when you make the connections. And uh, I failed to bring that up last week. I wanted to bring it up this week. Here's another point. Angels are now greater than humans in rank and in power. Now, this is another thing we talked about last week. Uh, when David remarked about how God is mindful of him, he says, you have made us, this is Psalm 8, a little lower than the heavenly beings. And in speaking of Christ's incarnation, when he was born of a woman and became human, he was still divine, but he became a human being. The writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8, in Hebrews 2, 5 and following, it says that Jesus was for a little time made a little lower than the angels. So while we're living as humans on earth for the time being, we are in rank lower than the angels. They are greater than us in rank and in power. Another interesting thought. Let's look at this next one. I've got a lot to say about this one. We will be greater than the angels because we have a Savior, and they don't. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, and let's read a few verses from there. Hebrews 2, beginning verse 14. This is speaking of Jesus as our high priest. And the writer says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Note verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let me ask you this question. Who has to die in place of a human who sinned? What, what nature does the sacrifice have to bear? A human sacrifice to substitute for a human sinner. Now, if Jesus was going to die for angels, the implication here is that he would have become an angel. But he didn't become an angel. For some reason, God's grace was shown to us, and us alone, among all the creatures. 
even the heavenly hosts. It is not the angels that he helps. This is all about the nature that Jesus took on when he was born into the world. It wasn't an angelic nature. This all starts in chapter 1 with him saying the angels worship Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. Evidently there was a, a streak of angel worship running through some of the readers here. And he's trying to show them, look, there are some respects in which even we are greater than angels. And it's not right now in terms of rank, but in terms of recipients of God's grace and the gospel, we have the gospel, they don't. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they... In relation to this, he could not have died for the angels because God had already pronounced those... Yes. Or, or punishment on those. Yeah, I've got something on that coming up, actually, because uh, we do have some records on what happened to the angels that sinned. Um, and I, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, but while we're open to Hebrews... Two, look up at uh, chapter 1, verse 14, and what does it say about angels? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of whom? Those who inherit salvation. Not the whole human population. But they're sent out to serve. Now, I know they outrank us, but they're also serving us. How? Maybe we'll have some time to discuss that in another lesson. But right now, note that is one of their roles in relation to us. Yeah, messenger. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I've got a whole class planned on the roles of angels, and we'll talk about um, how they minister, how they bring messages and announce things, and, and their relationship to the Old Covenant, their relationship to the New Covenant. Uh, there will be some interesting discussion there. One of my favorite verses on angels is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And it um, relates to this point that I'm making here that we will be greater than the angels because we have a Savior. Listen to what Peter says about our salvation. Again, this is 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and following. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted, that's the Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. He's speaking to the Christians in the Christian age. He, they were, these prophecies were all about the Christian age. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now look at this last part. Things into which angels long to look. They are so interested in the gospel and our salvation 
that they long to look. And the, the language behind that is to gaze with outstretched necks. You know, have you ever been in the back row and something is happening on stage and you can't see and everybody stands up and you're just trying to see over that tall person in front of you or that guy that wore his hat and you can't quite see it? That's the image of the angels here. We're, we're passing the gospel by all the time. You know, we take it for granted. There's so many people around us that have heard the gospel preached time and time again and they ignore it, they dismiss it. And angels are thinking, we would love to have this good news of Jesus Christ for us. And you see them depicted in Luke chapter 15 in those parables when um, Jesus describes a sinner who repents what do the angels do? They rejoice. They rejoice. Mark. Yeah. They, they get emotional about these things. Yes. Uh, here's a strange passage. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 1 through 3. Paul is addressing the problem of Christians suing one another. And he's saying we ought not to do that. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? In what sense do we judge angels? Well, we know the ultimate judge is Christ. And there are a few ways to look at this. I'm going to share two with you. One is, you know, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2 in uh, Revelation 20, that we will reign with Christ. We share in His victory. He is our brother in that sense, and uh, we share in the victory that, that He won over sin. And if we share in His victory, we share in His judgment. And maybe that's what it means. The only other way that I could interpret this is in the sense of Noah in Hebrews chapter 11 who built the ark and condemned the world. Now, Noah himself didn't send the floodwaters, right? He did not literally condemn the world, but by his actions, which were righteous, he made a clear distinction between himself and the unrighteous. And in that sense, the world was judged by comparison to him. So maybe those of us redeemed by the blood of the Lamb... Uh, judge angels in the sense that we will be declared righteous while certain angels who rebelled against heaven are not. I'm not sure that either one of those is the correct interpretation. I know there is a correct interpretation. I'm just not certain about it. Maybe both of those are on point. Let's go to those, the angels that have fallen. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. This is still under the heading that because we have a Savior 
in that sense, we're greater than the angels. And uh, this is back to that chapter where Peter is rebuking false teachers. And he poses this question, 2 Peter 2, 4, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, and he goes on for some other examples, uh, he talks about the flood in verse 5, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. Uh, he talks about Lot. And he gets to the end of the sentence in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. But go back to verse 4. There's some interesting things going on. First of all, angels can sin. No one can deny that because it had already happened by the writing of 2 Peter. And when they sinned, they were cast into hell. Now, my translation has a footnote here that connects this word hell not to Gehenna, the normal word for hell in the Bible, but the word Tartarus. And Tartarus seems to be that place of agony that's located in Hades, the spirit realm that is now in effect. You ask, where do the dead go? The righteous and the wicked, they go to the Hadean realm, an incorporeal realm, not for bodies. Resurrected bodies don't go to Hades. They go to heaven or they go to hell. But Hades is described in Luke chapter 16 as a place that has a great chasm running through it, separating the wicked from the righteous as they await judgment. And uh, Lazarus, for example, he was in comfort at Abraham's side. But uh, the rich man in Luke 16, he was in this place, Tartarus. And he was in agony, and there was flames, and he was asking for Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. He says, I'm in agony in this flame. And that is where the angels are described in this passage. In gloomy chains of darkness. That's interesting. When you combine these images of flames with darkness, you get the impression that we're looking at symbols and the true agony and depth of forsakenness we're not able to grasp and so just as we can't grasp the beauty of heaven we cannot grasp the ugliness and awfulness of hell or this place to Taurus. this is where the angels are now awaiting judgment and they had no second chance they're immortal they've already seen heaven and still tempted them to rebel against God. The exact sin is not mentioned here. But when they sinned, right then, they were cast down. And so we have something they don't have in having, um, in having the gospel. Yes? They, they are not given a chance to repent. That's right. And uh, that might have something to do with the fact that Satan has angels. He's described as having angels in uh, Matthew 25 and Revelation chapter 12. And we'll talk about that some more later on.
Mark, did you have something? That's all right. I'll tell you if you are. They, as far as I know, they don't call him Father. Uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that. So it's a different relationship that we have. They're not joint heirs with Christ. Because uh, Christ wasn't made in, he wasn't made an angel, he's made a human. Right. So Jesus makes us special compared to the angels. If this was... Before Jesus, I don't know that we could be saying all these things. But Jesus, he makes us special. He's the reason we judge the angels. He's the reason we have hope. He's the reason why we can be called joint heirs with him and sons of God. And, yeah. Right, you know, people will ask, can we sin in heaven? And I always say, why would we? I mean, why, what's the motivation? What can you do in heaven besides rebel against God and, and try to usurp him? And that seems to be the, the only sin... Uh, Sometimes uh, the devil's sin is described as covetousness. Perhaps the devil coveted God's place. Now, I'm getting into another lesson here, but I think that's what you're getting at. If I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying our trials here on earth are different from whatever temptations angels may have in heaven where they're in the presence of God. And maybe that's why God showed us grace and not them. Yeah, and another thought that occurred to me, remember Jesus said that in the resurrection we'll be like angels, we'll be equal to them in terms of immortality and of course uh, being sexless creatures, not capable of reproduction any longer. So ask yourself this, when we get to heaven, if we sin, will there be a chance for repentance then? And I think we'd all say, no, why would we sin and why would we get a second chance after this life? All the opportunities for forgiveness and repentance are on this side of eternity. And that may have something to do with it, with it as well. Right. 
Yeah. Right. I got one more comparison here. Humans in this age have physical natures. Angels are spiritual beings. I find this one a really interesting one to talk about. Uh, back to Hebrews 1.14. The question is, are they not ministering spirits? Now, that's interesting. Spirits. Um, a spirit is invisible, and we know they could take a form, but their true essence is spiritual, like God. God is a spirit, John 4, 24. Uh, they could be revealed at times, and I'll have more on this. I'm going to talk about their appearance in a moment. Um, they could be revealed, but for right now, let me just take you over to 1 Corinthians 15. I think a lot of things that we can infer about angels come from what is said about the resurrection. Since Jesus, in his discussion with the Sadducees, threw that out, that we're going to be like the angels. We don't want to take it too far, but I think we can apply this maybe to their, their nature versus our current nature. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. And Paul is addressing people who say there is no resurrection from the dead. And he says, if that's your point of view, he says this earlier, if in this life you have hope in Christ, in only this life, we are above all people most miserable. Because we're living for the next world. Our hope is, is in heaven. That's what our hope is for. So he goes on to talk about the resurrection. He gives eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and links that to our own. If Jesus was raised, we will be raised. And of course, there are questions about the resurrection body. We all have these questions. And Paul, you know, he answers them, but we're still scratching our heads afterwards. But I want you to look at verse 40 in particular. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Uh, later on, he says, uh, verse 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, I've heard some philosophize that whereas our physical bodies are animated through biological processes, blood coursing through your veins, heart beating, nerve, electricity running through your nerves. All those things are going on inside our bodies. The spiritual body will be animated by the spirit. Now the spirit's involved in resurrection. You can look at Romans 8, 11, uh, where that is connected. But we don't have a whole lot to go on there. I think the best thing that we can say is there are spiritual bodies they're not going to die. They're imperishable. They're incorruptible. They're glorious. They will be like Jesus' body. And that's about as far as we can go. But it does tell us that the angels, being spirits, can and probably do have bodies. But they're spiritual bodies. And again, the reason I'm saying they can and probably do is because we're told by Jesus that in the resurrection, we will be like angels. 
and that we will be like Christ. And when Christ ascended into heaven, he ascended in his body. And the angel said, you see him going up, he will come back just as you see him going up. So you can ask questions about that, and I'll just continue to say I have no idea. But those are interesting thoughts. Okay, uh, so though I'm done with the comparison with humans. Let's try to pick up some more angelic attributes as we have time. As we're just touching on the nature of angels, and it's still kind of introductory material. So as to their appearance, we see several things. Sometimes in Scripture... I thought I had some slides on this. I guess not. Sometimes in Scripture, they look just like normal human beings. The three men that came to Abraham's tent, at the beginning, Abraham, who was very hospitable to them, uh, seems to think they were just men, maybe special men, admirable men, but men. It was only later that he realized that he was speaking to angels. Same with Lot. When Lot saw them out in the town square in Sodom and invited him into his home, he thought he was inviting two men into his home. And so sometimes they have that appearance of a man. And that's why we're warned in Hebrews 13 too, to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, many have entertained angels unawares. I remember teaching on angels to a youth group one time, and it was at a camp. And uh, I was a youth minister. We sat around and talked, and there was this girl, and they didn't know where she came from, and they were just getting really spooked out by this stuff. <laughs> and one of them said, hey, Drew, he said, where does that girl come from? What church is she with? I said, I don't know. He said, you think she's an angel? I said, no. <laughs> but he was, he was, like, nervous about Hebrews 13, too. He was just you know, really taking that to heart. And we should, we should. Um, so sometimes they can show the appearance of normal human beings. Other times they've appeared as men, but with extraordinary appearance or power. Here's a passage that we often miss, and I'll take you to it. Genesis 32, 1 and 2. I think a lot of times when we're studying angels, we don't, we don't see this one. This is right before Jacob wrestles the angel wrestles with God. But Genesis 32 begins, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So he saw them. They seem, they, they're not described as being brilliant or splendorous but at the same time, he knew they were unusual. There was something remarkable about them. Or he would have said, this is God's camp. The angels at the um, tomb of Jesus, I picture as human form, but extraordinary in their appearance. On other occasions, they've been invisible unless and until they were revealed by God. One example of that is in 2 Kings chapter 6, where Elisha, uh, is surrounded, his house is surrounded by the king's armies, and his servant is losing his mind over this. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And uh, the men outside are blinded, 
And then Elisha prays that his servant's eyes be open, and his eyes are open, and he can see chariots of fire all around and the angelic hosts. Now that's a philosophical question for you. Did God make the angels appear, or did he make the servants see them? And I think it, it seems to me that God made the servant, gave the servant ability to see the spiritual realm for a temporary period of time uh, so he could see these angelic armies all around. So that's a little bit about their appearance. Real quickly, we've covered a lot of this. Uh, they are free moral agents. It means they can make choices. God does not force them to do his will. They are expected to do his will. Psalm 103, verse 20, they are commanded to obey the Lord. They're expected to do His will, but He doesn't force them, and that's why some have sinned. Uh, they inspire awe, but they are not to be worshipped. John fell down at the feet of an angel in Revelation 19, verse 10, and the angel told him to get up. He said, I'm not God, I'm like you. They're creatures. They're not eternal. They are immortal. They're not God, meaning they're not omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Uh, they may be greater than us in power, might, and intelligence, but they are not God. Do they eat? I wish I had more time for this one, but I put it at the end for a reason. I mean, this is not one of the most important points. But I do think it's interesting in one of the Psalms of David, Psalm 78, verse 25, it talks about the bread of angels, and that's real good with strawberries on it. Uh, <laughs> But he's talking about manna. He calls manna the bread of angels. And do you remember when Elijah was discouraged after Jezebel was threatening his life and he just wanted to die and God sent an angel to feed him? And he eats this little meal under that broom tree. And do you know how long he went on that food? 40 days and 40 nights. So that's not, you know, meat and potatoes. That's something different. I mean, we, can, we can only speculate. Uh, in Genesis 18, when the men came to Abraham's tent, what did he do? He killed a, was it a calf? or He killed a calf and they ate with him. And uh, Lot gave the angels food as well. And it's just an interesting point. Remember, when we're resurrected, we will be like Jesus. Jesus in his resurrected body ate food. In Luke 24, he ate broiled fish and honey. Uh, there are a lot of questions about that. Um, was that body Jesus had post-resurrection the same body he has now? What, you know, nobody knows for sure. Was, were they eating because they needed food? I doubt it very seriously. How can an immortal being need food? But uh, these are just interesting things that we notice as we go through. Well, that's uh, all the time we have for tonight. Maybe a quick question or comment, Mark? Especially count the visions that he had. Yeah. Yeah, Jacob. And we don't talk about his interaction with the angels a whole lot. But uh, he wrestled and saw them and named places after them. Interesting things about... Abraham's whole family, you know. Any other comment, Linda?
I think what that is is a physical form, but it's not their essence. They can be manifested in a physical form, but that, we're not able to see their true essence without that, maybe with that insight that God gave Elijah, Elisha's servant, maybe it's possible. All right, lots of questions, hopefully a few answers, but uh, we will continue next week.